0: When my brother and I were just little kids, one of the things that we really loved to do was build model cars. Now, this was totally old school, so for some of you, you won't know that this was before Minecraft and it was before 3D printing. And so what we would do is meticulously cut out pieces, the pieces of plastic, uh, paint them carefully and then piece them together. It was A good thing, it was a really fun thing to do, but it had quite a bit of scope for things to go wrong because it involved knives, paint, and glue. Now, because of that, there are a few rules involved. But one day, in my relentless pursuit of efficiency as a 10-year-old, I decided to disband the use of the cutting mat because that just seemed to be slowing me down. I only discovered in my haste, as I was removing the plastic pieces, I also had carved out a number of large, deep grooves in the wooden dining table below. Now, I'd already broken a couple of rules in that process, but I thought instead of fessing up, I could solve the problem, and that I could simply infill those grooves with glue and then lightly sand back the dining table. Now, I know this might come as a huge shock to you, those who aren't woodworkers, but it didn't work. And what started as an accident turned into a mess upon mess upon mess. Today, as we begin our new series in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, it doesn't take very long at all to realise that the church in Corinth is in a bit of a mess. In 146 BC, the Romans had decimated Corinth, Corinth. 100 years later, Julius Caesar had rebuilt it, made a Roman colony, and by 50 AD, Corinth had become the capital of Achaea. so what is modern-day Greece. It was a cultural melting pot of Greeks, Syrians, Jews, and Roman veterans. It was known for its extraordinary wealth, but also that there were a great number who were utterly impoverished. They had many gods that are pretty spiritual, but not particularly religious. They had dozens of pagan temples, and some estimate that there was up to a thousand or more temple prostitutes employed. And so it's to this very place and time and context that we read in Acts, Acts chapter 18, that Paul spends 18 months teaching in the synagogue to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus was the Messiah, only then for a little bit later after he faced fierce opposition and abuse to focus his gospel efforts with the Gentiles. Now, if you know anything about Paul, he was a serial church planner and normally what he'd do is he'd go from place to place, spending a few weeks or maybe a couple of months establishing the church and then raising up local leadership and moving on. But here we read in Corinth, he had actually pastored the church here. It was really close to his heart. He'd spent 18 months there. And there had been incredible gospel through as this burgeoning church carried on. And so we read in Acts chapter 18, verse seven, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. This is a good news story of the good news really taking grasp in a people. But fast forward a few years, Paul's left Corinth, he's now in Ephesus, and he gets word that the church in Corinth is in a mess. It's in a pickle. In fact, if you quickly scan through the letter, the letter to the Corinthians, it actually reads as a comprehensive litany of issues, as the church in Corinth seemingly goes from bad to worse, seemingly perverted in every aspect of their working and worshipping lives. This is the church unfiltered. You're probably not gonna feature any of these things on a church website if you go looking around. There's issues in leadership, division between leaders, competitiveness about gifts, unchecked sexual immorality, drunkenness at the Lord's Supper, and even confusion about the resurrection of the dead. It could be hard to know when you hear that list of all these reports of where to begin with such a disparate set of issues. But not for Paul. Paul sees really clearly that all of these issues are not randomly unrelated hodgepodge of problems, but he quickly diagnoses that the mess and the messes that they're making, even of good things, are all interconnected. There's a common thread. So, so Paul doesn't go running for the hills. He doesn't accuse the church of of abandoning the gospel. But he says the forgotten, who God has made them to be. That instead of living lives transformed by the gospel, they're instead living lives. That are conformed to the world so paul longs for them not individualistic worldliness but unity and holiness we'll see that as paul unpicks issue by issue by issue and every time he'll keep pointing back to the gospel to the good news of jesus for paul it's all about Jesus. That's what he wants the Corinthians to see. In fact, if you, if you look through those first nine verses in chapter one, you'll note that Paul actually talks about Jesus eight times in just nine verses. See, the reason that the Corinthians are confused liturgically, ethically, pastorally, theologically, uh, sexually, in every way, is because they've dropped Jesus when it's all about him. Uh, Big picture, just so we get orientated to the letter. The letter is split into roughly two halves. The first half is chapters one to six, in which Paul addresses a whole stack of rumours and reports that he has received. And then it moves on from chapter seven onwards, the second half of the letter, in which Paul is responding to a letter that he's received from some in the Corinthian community, but unfortunately someone lost that letter, so we don't have that one. But he's responding to their questions. The right at the beginning... Paul begins not by flying off at the Corinthians, letting off steam, of saying, what are you guys doing? But he starts by reminding them of who they are. So three things. They are called by God, supplied with gifts, and will be kept blameless. So first, the Corinthians have been called by God. So at the forefront of Paul's mind, up front and centre, before he goes about surgically dissecting all of their issues he's reminding the Corinthians of their identity. That's underscored first by Paul's identity. So verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and of our brother Sosthenes. Now, we're actually not really sure who Sosthenes is. He might be the synagogue leader who's mentioned in Acts chapter 18. Likely Sosthenes is the very one who's writing down the letter now for Paul as Paul dictates it. But regardless of who he is, when Paul says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, this is not Paul grandstanding or puffing himself up in order to sort of assert his greatness, but he's underscoring that everything he has to say is not on the platform of his own authority or by his own will, but on the platform of God's authority and by God's will. Paul is merely God's messenger. Now this is really critical, because as we'll see just not very far on later in chapter one, that the church in Corinth is running a bit of a popularity contest about who is the greatest leader amongst them. And Paul wants their identity not to be bound up in him or another leader or the culture. He doesn't want their identity to be bound up in the job or the wealth or the status or the reputation. But he wants their identity to be totally grounded in who God has called them to be, they're in Christ. So immediately, good warning both to those who are, are Christian leaders, that Christian leaders ought not to get their identity from those who are following them, must not be bound up in that. And also followers of Jesus, that our identity must not be bound up in a particular Christian leader. For not only will those people, or those people are imperfect and they're bound to disappoint us in some way, but the truth of who we are is much more stable and much more thrilling. We are God's church. So verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Look at the dimensions of who we are. Not Paul's church, but God's church. Sanctified in Christ, which means that they and we We've been set apart by Jesus, called out by name, We're called to be his holy people, which means we are to bear Jesus' likeness, for we belong to him. We are his possessions, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord, which means that belonging to God's church doesn't just mean we're connected to those who we look around and see in this room right now, but it connects them and us to the entire church that spans all space and all time. So St. Bart's is not my church or your church. We are God's church. The, the church is not a pile of bricks or tilt up concrete slabs, but we're a living body and bought by God. Uh, that's why when Paul says that he gives thanks to the church in Corinth, it's not because of how amazing they are, if they're expecting a whole litany of compliments. But he gives thanks to them and for them because of the amazing grace that has been given to them in Jesus. He says, that's already happened. That's done and dusted. It can be something you can look back on and be sure of. The people of Corinth, in many ways, are probably not too dissimilar to us on a whole range of fronts, but they particularly had a reputation of jumping from fad to fad, of going from one thing to another. Uh, Right now in Australia and at this point in time, we live in a culture in which we are pretty obsessed with finding our identity in ourselves or from other things that we jump from here and there. But Paul, and the gospel says that our true identity, one that is unshakable and sure, something we can be certain of, comes not from in ourselves, but from outside of ourselves, of who we are In Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's who you are. It's your identity. You are part of God's church. You know what that means? That means that when we choose to act in a way that is incongruent with what God wants, we're not just rejecting what God longs us to do, but we're actually also forgetting who God has called us to be. It's like Paul saying to the uh, church in Corinth, don't you remember who you are? This is a problem of forgetfulness of our identity. I just imagine that this weekend, it's a long weekend, so I get to Tuesday morning and I'm very confused about where I'm meant to go. So instead of rocking up here to St Bart's, I I rock up to my children's school and, and much the embarrassment of my son, I walk into year one pull up a chair and sit down, ready to be taught as a student in year one all over again. Surely someone would say, Adam, what are you doing? You are no longer a student. You're a grown adult. Don't you remember who you are? You're the church of God, sanctified in Christ, called to be his holy people. Second, Paul reminds the church in Corinth that they have been supplied with gifts. Verse 5, if you'd like to look with me. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So in face of all the challenges and, and living distinctively as called out by as God's people to live the Christian life to witness for Jesus and to stand against the culture of the time, the the paganism and the immorality, Paul is reminding them that they already in the present right now have every gift that they need. And so note that Paul's reference, of course, is not to them as individuals, but as to the whole church. I think it's so exciting to think that that all that we need to do what God is calling us to do and be who calling God is calling us to be, if we just look around us in the life of our church, all those gifts have already been supplied to us. That means that not only do we all have a part to play, but that every part is really important. It's both affirming and corrective all at the same time that if we're not using our gifts then the implication must mean that the whole body is missing out. And if we are using our gifts, then that's the whole body at work. I'm constantly amazed, week in, week out, at just how enriched we are as a church through God's provision of gifts. Uh, When Paul says that we've been enriched uh, in every way, there's a sense that, that God has lavishly entrusted and endowed his gifts to us. It's a bit like when you think of some of those really massive historic universities around the world who have these uh, gigantic endowment funds. They have been given all this money and basically they can keep existing in perpetuity because of all the endowment funds that they've received. Well, God has entrusted us with something much more valuable, worth much more, his gifts as we've been working to start implementing our Vision 2025, where we believe God is leading us to to move and to act, there have been some really new areas that we're exploring. There are some really challenging things that we believe God is leading us to. But even as we begin, just as we get started and as we've asked people to pray and to indicate where they think that they might be able to participate, I've been absolutely astounded at the way in which God has raised up and gifted passionate people for those areas. Every time I look at Mission 2025 and I I lock onto one area and I think, oh, wow, Uh, I'm not sure where we're possibly going to find someone with the right combination of, of skills, experience and passion for that particular issue, right before my eyes, God raises them up. As Paul goes on to challenge the Corinthians on a whole number of fronts, they could have been so tempted to say, well, we can't quite address that yet, or we can't quite address that until. But Paul is saying, you have every good gift needed amongst you right now. Now, this is... a. Not, of course, to say that we should be praying that God would continue to raise up workers for the harvest. Or that we don't need to be patient sometimes and wait for God's provision. But it does mean that as we pray, we should expect God to bring those gifts into faithful, mature expression for the purposes for which he has for us right now. Paul says, they have been enriched in every way. With all the challenges they face, can you imagine? All the challenges they faced, with all the opportunities they had, my mind totally boggles at all the possibilities and the depth of the riches of gifts that God has given. One of the big problems that had surfaced in the church in Corinth was a real arrogance about gifts. They had become really competitive about their gifts. They weighed up some gifts over others of being more super spiritual. They, they craved some spiritual gifts in order to be superior. People were desiring secret knowledge like that of the Gnostics. Some were even ranking gifts like tongues and prophecies as markers of what it means to be a true believer. An individualistic approach to gifts had led to all sorts of pride and arrogance. But Paul's not going to have any of that. It's likely what he's correcting when he says, you've been gifted with all speech and knowledge that you need as a body. You've already had the testimony, the witness of the good news among you. In speaking, there are those with the gift of teaching, prophecy, evangelism and encouragement. In knowledge, we have God's word, we have the gospel and we have been empowered by God's spirit. We don't need a a special guru. We don't need to solve a secret riddle. Paul says we've got all we need. Therefore, as you wait for Jesus' return, what are we waiting for? Like J.R. Packer said, one of my favourite quotes of all time, he says, it's not let go and let God, but trust God and get going. Finally, Paul reminds the church in Corinth that they will be kept blameless. So verse 8, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's going to get really challenging after his greeting, after these nine verses. All sorts of sin is going to be exposed. And so Paul's going to go totally unfiltered with the church in Corinth. He's not going to close his eyes to any of the truth or sweep it any under the carpet. Sometimes when convicted by sin or in the face of rebuke, our reaction can be to kind of go in defence or run away or just feel hopelessly lost. So before... Paul gets gritty on all the stuff and tackles the problems. He reminds them first of the great hope, which will enable them not to shy away from the truth, but to face the truth and hold fast. That on the day of the Lord, that is, on the day when Jesus returns to judge the world and every single hidden thing is brought to light, the same God who has called them into relationship with Jesus will keep them blameless because of what Jesus has done. That on that day when the dead will be raised to an incorruptible life forever, a day which Paul so longs for that right at the end of his letter he concludes with the phrase, O come Lord Jesus, that in the face of that, that we would neither fear nor faint of that which will be exposed, but delight that God has promised that those who trust in him where they will be found guiltless. The Corinthians are not going to be kept blameless by the great efforts. The Corinthians are not going to be kept blameless because of the great gifts. The Corinthians will be kept blameless because of the Lord Jesus. And so can we. I mean, can you imagine on that day, the day when Jesus returns and, and every bit of sin is brought to light for each and every one of us, even the sin that we have been totally oblivious to, totally ignorant of. On that day, on what other basis could we appeal? Could we appeal to our own merit, our achievements, or to our own goodness? Confronted by the reality of our sin, could we possibly boast in ourselves? I mean, can you imagine for a moment, there I stand in front of the Lord Jesus, Confronted by the reality and the depth of my sin. And I say, oh yes, Jesus, that is really bad. You're right, I totally missed that one. But look at all the study I've done. I say, yes, Jesus, I'd really forgotten about that. I really ought not to have done that. But look at all the good things I had done. That'd be kind of like claiming that I can get to the moon by jumping on the spot. It just won't work. The only way that we can be kept blameless is because of God's faithfulness. In Jesus. The Corinthians, despite all the issues, actually already have that assurance. We can have a wonderful certainty that we stand on solid ground. So following Jesus, it's not like being on a stage where you're performing, hoping to get a good review and that God doesn't pull the trapdoor from beneath us. But then no matter what our ups and downs, of how wobbly things get, that God is the one who will bring us through. That doesn't give us freedom to do whatever we want, but it gives us a freedom to live for God without fear of condemnation. As Paul through this letter lines up what they're doing against the gospel, things are gonna get really honest, really unfiltered. Everything is gonna be brought to the surface. And the only thing that will give them a confidence, the only thing that can give us a confidence to face the sharp end of God's word is to be reminded that they have been called by God, supplied with all the gifts that they need, and that God will keep them blameless until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that it's not by our achievements or our merit or how many good things that we rack up, but it's by your extraordinary grace and mercy that you have called us to be your church, that you have supplied us with every good gift that we need and that you, through the Lord Jesus, through his death and resurrection, will keep us blameless to the end as we trust in him. And so Lord, we pray that you would expose the sin in our lives, that you would show us the ways in which we get so off track, that we would be increasingly conformed to the shape of your good news and reflect that in our lives. But I particularly pray that we would really come to a growing understanding of what it means to stand on the solid ground of Jesus, that we don't need to be wobbly, their identity bound up in so many other things, but that as who we are is bound up in Jesus, that he is our rock and that we have a secure future in you. Lord, we thank you so much for this good news and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.